Welcome to the Grace City Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to hello at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. Like Casey said, my name's Chris. I'm a pastor here, occasional worship leader, and uh, it's good to be with you all this morning. It's good to see your faces, or at least the top half of them, and I'm excited to get into the Word with you here this morning. Um, We're continuing our series called Passion. This is like the final days of Jesus' life before he's murdered on the cross, and we're we're looking at all that was that was happening, what was building up to this moment. And uh, today is the second week in this. We're going to be in Mark chapter fourteen, starting at verse twelve. But first, we, we need to we need to clarify something here. Oftentimes, when when people read through the gospel, and especially like this last week of Jesus's life, as he enters into Jerusalem, and as he is approaching the cross in these final days. People kind of can read this with, with a lens that like Jesus is just kind of building this plane while he flies it. Have you guys ever heard that, that terminology? It's like, man, all this stuff's coming and these Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders just coming out of the woodworks to criticize him, pin him in a corner. And now one of his friends is going to betray him. And we think all of these things. And it's like, man, how does Jesus react to all this? How does he just always knows the perfect way to handle things and and we can, we can get it a little twisted and think that Jesus is just reacting and adapting as he goes along, but we need to realize that he's in control, that he knows exactly what's happening. And this week of scripture, verses 12 through 25, highlight for us very clearly that Jesus knows what's going on here. And my goal is that as we go through this today, that you will find hope because you won't have to look at your own life saying, man. I bet Jesus didn't see that coming. I bet God didn't know that was going to happen to me. How is he going to adapt to that? And it's like, no, God's got us. He's in control. His grace abounds, and he loves each one of us individually, so much so that we get this story, this gift of Jesus on the cross that we're learning about. So please, like, as we read through this, look through it at the lens of like, whoa, Jesus really did know what was about to happen. And I believe that this week as we go through this, it's really going to help us understand that, that he's in control and that there is great comfort in that. Amen? So if you got a Bible, a Bible app, or you just like to read off the TVs behind me, which I guarantee you there is scripture on them this week. For those of you that were looking for them last week, you didn't have the right glasses on to see the uh, encrypted code on the TVs. But we have them up there. Chapter 14, verses 12 through 25. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of the disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. And when the evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, 
Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread in the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for everything that you have for us in it. Thank you for what you want to speak to us and encourage us to apply in our lives through it today. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak through these words and through me. God, as we've been praying every week in this series, would you give us the hearts to receive, the ears to hear what you have for us this morning. So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. So, we see our Savior here, that's Jesus, in total control, down to every last detail as he makes his way to the cross to die for the sins of the world, as John 1.29 tells us. And indeed, he will be crushed, but not by the religious leaders in the world, which it seems like in the circumstances of the moment, but by the will of his Father, because God has sent him for this. It is, and it's the will of our Lord Jesus, and he embraces it to be that sacrifice. We need to understand that Jesus is not a tragic hero caught in events beyond his control. He's not just some like movie character where you're like, oh my gosh, how could that happen to him? I can't believe he didn't see that coming. Like that is not what's happening here. He's not caught in this tragedy unbeknownst to him. This is not beyond his control. There is no hint of desperation, fear, anger, or futility on his part. Jesus doesn't cower or retreat when plots are made against him. We've seen plots being made against him for weeks and weeks now in the scripture. And here he displays, like he has throughout the gospel, a sovereign freedom and authority to follow a course that he has freely chosen in accordance with God's plan. He has chosen to cooperate, to partner with God's plan in this. Out of full freedom. He's not some prisoner just going through this. Like He knows what he's doing. He's in control. He is freely giving this gift as he approaches the cross. Our King Jesus knows exactly where he is going and how it will happen. He knows what's about to go down. You'll get to hear more about that next week. The thing about sovereign grace that comes from God is it will use even the most evil of things to accomplish the will of God. And that's what we see here is like sovereign grace will even use human evil to accomplish God's will. Even the evil things. Our Lord will be certain that everything goes according to his plan. So people can read this passion narrative and get the wrong idea about Jesus' role, about his knowledge, about the intentionality that is in it. And this week, we're going to see three things 
in this passage that show us as far as Jesus is concerned, everything was going according to plan. Everything was going according to plan. First of all, Jesus was in control of the events leading up to his death. So let's unpack this first little chunk. The first day of unleavened bread when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. So the disciples want to know, like, where is this memorial meal, this celebratory meal, this meal of remembrance, if you will, going to take place so they can make preparation? Like, yo, Jesus, where's this going down? Because, you know, we've just been kind of wandering around. So where is this meal going to happen? We're excited to get this thing set up. We get to have a Passover meal with you. Like, this is going to be amazing. Where should it be? And we see in verses 13 through 15 that Jesus provides very precise instructions, doesn't he? It's not like, oh, go until you find someone who's a philanthropist and will open their home. It's like, hey, go till you find a man who is carrying a jar of water, which was normally a task that, that women or slaves would do in that time. This wasn't something that like the, the owner of a home or something like that would be doing. And then they were supposed to follow that person to the house that they went into and then ask the master of that house and tell him, hey, the teacher wants to, wants to have a meeting here. He wants to have Passover here with his disciples. And Jesus informed them that he would show them a large upper room, fully furnished and ready to go, and that's where they would make preparations. Now, amazingly, but for us at this point, it shouldn't be surprising Verse 16 tells us the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just like Jesus had told them. Again, Jesus knows exactly what's going down to the very details of the interactions that are going to lead them to this room. Now, it is possible that Jesus knew this man who was carrying the jar, or that he knew the master of the house, yet details of this, as we read it, suggest that this is a supernatural knowledge. Like, Jesus just knows, because he is God embodied, what is about to go down. He's in control, and he's helping lead his disciples to make this happen. So the two disciples did as they were instructed. And they would also have prepared the Passover lamb as they were getting things ready, which symbolized their deliverance from slavery and redemption out of Egypt. But little did they know, little did they know that even a greater Passover was unfolding right under their eyes. Jesus was preparing himself to be sacrificed as our, as their Passover lamb. You see, as we, as we read through this, we need to wrap our minds around this fact. They are celebrating Passover and remembering what happened as they were taken out of Egypt. But Jesus is doing this at this specific time because he is the perfect Passover lamb sacrifice for our eternity, for our salvation. Keep that in your mind as we read through this. John the Baptist declared, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In John 1.29, as he speaks of Jesus. Jesus is indeed our Passover Lamb, and he is in complete control leading up to his death. We cannot mistake that fact. The cross didn't catch him off guard. In fact, it was a divine appointment scheduled, as Peter would write in 1 Peter 1.20, before the foundation of the world. This was planned. It was a divine appointment. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Now listen to this. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus knew down to the last detail what was happening, and he joyfully embraced it. He knew what he was doing, and it was with joy that he encountered the cross, because it's what the Father had for him. So such confidence in God's will, as we see it here, should inspire us to trust him, even when the road of life may be difficult. Even when there's painful things happening, even when there's death and other hardships and struggles, seeing how God is in control should inspire a greater and deeper trust in him as we encounter and walk through those things. Amen? So if that's you and you're walking through some hard things, maybe you're just coming out of walking into some hard things, maybe some hard things are on the horizon, trust that God is in control. He has you. He's going to walk through the valley with you. He will not leave you there. Amen? Our God is in control. The second thing here is that Jesus was not caught by surprise at his betrayal. So many times we think of a betrayal and it's like this blind side, right? Like, oh my gosh, how could that have happened? Where did that come from? But how many of you in this room know that betrayal does often come from those closest to us, right? Betrayal comes from those that have access to special parts of our lives, special events in our lives, maybe some vulnerable parts of our lives that we don't just open up to everybody. And the case was the same here. But again, we know that because Jesus was in complete control of all the events leading up to his death, he was not surprised by this betrayal. It may have been someone that had insider knowledge that was close to him, but he was not surprised. Was he heartbroken and disappointed? I can imagine so. This betrayer was a close, trusted friend. As I look around this room, I can only imagine how many of us have experienced maybe something similar where we've experienced betrayal or, or hurt from someone that was close to us or we thought we could trust. And it's in this that, once again, we get to identify with Jesus and we get to walk out faithfully through hurt instead of staying in it. Because the betrayal isn't where the story ends, amen? This hurt isn't where the story ends. But as Mark records of this part, there's two specific events that he focuses on. He focuses on the Lord's betrayal by Judas and Jesus' institution of what we call the Lord's Supper. So we, we read here that they're reclining at a table and eating. And this seems here, I'm going to move this down because I want to look at all your, you guys and that just keeps getting there. Uh, we see them like reclining and eating, right? And doesn't that seem weird? Like, man, how many of you recline while you eat at the table? Like, well, not me. Like, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm leaning forward, I'm into it. <laughs> and, and the, the, the picture of this is just, and if you've seen like paintings of the Last Supper and stuff, like kind of laying on their side, perched on their elbow and, and eating. And now in other cultures, this is much more of a familiar scene than what we would experience here. But this is customary of how they would share a meal together. It's the normal posture for that day. And Jesus utters these world, words that must have sent a shock or a chill through the entire room. He says, I assure you, one of you will betray me. One of you who's eating with me. It's like, if I'm in that room, I'm like, oh my goodness. First thing I'm thinking is, whew, I know it's not me, so we got to let, we're narrowed down to 11, right? Like, we just rise up in this piousness, of like, oh, this piety, of, oh, that wouldn't be me. Of course, I could never do that. I could never betray Jesus. And, and 
and, but here it's clear. He says, it's, it's one of you 12. Like one of you, the closest to me, is going to betray me. And then these words, we see they, they provoke grief and some soul searching in these guys. As it should, like if this teacher you've been following, this Messiah, this son of man tells you, hey, the hard reality of this is, guys, one of you is about to betray me. And then each of, him, each of them responds, it says, one by one, saying, surely it's not me, right? Like, they need affirmation from him that they're not going to betray him. Like, you're not, you're not prophesying about me betraying you, are you, Lord? And Jesus narrows that potential list down and responds with, oh, it's one of you. One of you who is eating with me. One of his most intimate and trusted companions. And then Jesus makes one of the most profound and theologically significant statements in the whole Bible. He says, the son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him to not have been born. Before we move forward, we need to observe a couple things about where we're at in this story here. Jesus, the son of man, was predestined to be betrayed and crucified. We know that. This was God's plan. He's in control. We, we know that the one betraying the Lord, Jesus, was pitied in spite of this horrible deed. It says, woe to the man. Like, there's this, ah, Judas. Like, come on, man. Like, there's, there's an inherent pity in the way that he words this. Jesus loved and cared for Judas. He wasn't like, that's right, get Judas out of here. You go tell on me. You go get, like, no. It, like, it, there's, a, there's a pain there as he's being betrayed by someone who's close to him. And then we see that the future judgment of Judas will be so terrible that it would be better that he was not born. It's pretty harsh words to hear from your Savior, right? It'd be better if you just weren't born. Here we are reminded that truth revealed to us brings responsibility. Truth revealed to us comes with responsibility. Because even though Judas' betrayal was ordained according to God's plan, he's morally responsible for his free will action. There is a tension here. Jesus will be betrayed and crucified according to God's predetermined will. But this is no way, has no way relieved Judas of responsibility and guilt. Like he's still guilty in this. And this is this divine mystery that we live in this tension as Christians. That we won't have the answer fully in this life of, of this tension between divine sovereignty or God's power and his will and his knowledge. And that it never fully cancels out free will. There's this tension of, is God all-powerful and all-knowing? Yes, heck yes, absolutely. Do we have free will? Yes. Well, what percentage? Like, which one is it? Yes, it's both. All of it. Like, it's, it's, it's both. And us, you know, we want answers, and we want to be able to have an equation for, for things. And we just can't. It's beyond our understanding. We have to be okay with the fact that God knows. He's in control, and there is free will. And we see that in how Judas handles this situation in betraying him. And then what judgment is set before him. <clears throat> so we have this question that the disciples are asking. Is it I? Is it I? Surely, God, is it, is it me? Am I the one that's going to betray you? And the reality is that that next day or that evening, yes, Judas was the one. But over the span of time, throughout the next morning, every one of them would betray him, right? 
Like, it's not just Judas. And so the answer for each of these disciples has to be, ah, yeah, it was you. You are going to betray me. And that answer is actually the same for us as well. As followers of Jesus, we will, through personal acts of sin, functionally betray him from time to time. Yet this is where the grace of the gospel shines the brightest. It's where grace shines the brightest. That even those who betray this great king and glorious savior can experience immediate and complete forgiveness through simple repentance and confession of sin. We all mess up. We all do things that aren't God's ultimate plan, ultimate purpose, aren't the way that he would necessarily have us do them. But as we confess our sin, as we repent, turn from the sin, and turn to Jesus, his love and grace abounds. Amen? It's not something we try to earn. We don't have to go pay penance, and we don't have to go do a bunch of things so that God will let us be in his presence again. We simply confess, God, I am so sorry. I want to turn from that. I want to turn to you, and I'm going to do my best to bring honor and glory to you from here on out. And his grace abounds, and his love abounds in us. In grace, God forgives, and he provides strength to move forward into a family of forgiveness. That's the church. We're a family of those who have been forgiven by the grace of God. Amen? We're a family. And as we get to experience that, we get to pray for and contend for others to also experience that very same thing. To be a part of a family of forgiveness. What a great family it is to be in the family of God. Amen? The third thing here is that Jesus prepared a last supper that was actually a first supper. We call it the Last Supper, but functionally, like, we can look at this as a first supper. So we know from John 13 that Jesus had already served his disciples by washing their feet. And now he serves them again by instituting what we refer to as the Last Supper. However, like I said, we could refer to this as a first supper because it inaugurates this new covenant. This new covenant which God made with us through the Lord Jesus, our Passover lamb, who was going to be sacrificed for us. This inaugurated in this new covenant. And his death made possible a new and a greater exodus as we are set free from our slavery to sin. You see, they're celebrating the Passover meal, which was to remember the exodus from Egypt, from their slavery and oppression by the Egyptian people. And they were freed from that. And now as Jesus comes as our Passover lamb, we get freed because of his sacrifice from our slavery as well. A greater Exodus from the slavery to sin for all time and for all people. What an amazing gift. The ultimate Passover lamb. So they were doing this Passover meal. And oftentimes we read this and we just think, oh, they're having food. And then Jesus all of a sudden busts out the bread and wine and starts talking about how you're going to eat me and, and drink my blood. And like, it seems kind of weird and out of place. But what's actually happening here is they're having the proper Passover meal. A proper Passover meal. And this was the occasion that the Lord's Supper is instituted within. Now, a proper Passover meal included four points, four main points. And there were four glasses of wine that they would drink and remember each of these things. And this was often conducted by the head of the family. The patriarch of the family would step forward and explain what each cup represented and what we are celebrating, what we are remembering. And holding a glass of wine, they would get up and explain the feast's meaning. And the four cups of wine represented four promises made to God's people in Exodus 6, 6, and 7. That's where the Passover meal comes from. Now these promises were for one, rescue from Egypt, 
Two, for freedom from slavery. Three, for redemption by God's power. And then the fourth was to remember a renewed relationship with God. That's what each of those cups represented. And as they do this Passover meal, that's what they're remembering every year when they have this feast. Now, the third cup would come at a point when the meal was almost completely eaten. And then they would come together, and they would grab that third cup, and they would explain what they were about to commemorate or remember. And this third cup, we believe, is the one that we read about in verse 23. This third cup is Jesus picks up the glass of wine. This is just integrated into the normal Passover meal. So the Passover meal is proceeding as usual when suddenly Jesus departs from the normal script. He goes off script, okay? And what he says are words that would only come from a madman unless you're the son of God. Like, this is a very religious, like, liturgical thing, this Passover feast. It's done a certain way over time. People just memorize how to do it. It's handed down. And all of a sudden, Jesus starts saying stuff that if you were a Jewish person celebrating Passover and the patriarch at the head of the table started dropping this stuff, you'd just be like, what's, 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 huh? Excuse me? But he's the son of man, and so it isn't crazy. It's actually a fulfillment of prophecy. It's actually a fulfillment of prophecy. He is the true Passover lamb. So breaking the, ble- the bread and blessing it, he says, take this, it's my body. And then he takes the cup, he blesses it, and they all drank from it in a communal fashion. And then he says, this is my blood that establishes a new, everybody say new, a new covenant. It's a blood covenant that it is shed for many informs us that this new covenant, which we read about prophesied in Jeremiah 31, is made possible by the death of a suffering servant who bears the sins for many. It's a blood covenant about a suffering servant sacrifice to bear the sins for many. And then Jesus tells the disciples that each time they gather in the future to celebrate this meal, they're to do it in remembrance of him. Now, they were doing this to remember God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. Now he's like, ah, from now on when you do this, you're going to remember me. You're going to remember this Passover. You're going to remember this redemptive thread of history for your people. You're going to remember what I am doing for you. Jesus then brings things to a close by refusing to drink the final cup. We just think he's, he's talking about something else. when He says, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom is fully established, basically. But in the context of this Passover meal, he skips the fourth cup. He skips the fourth cup, which is the cup of consummation and life in the promised land of God. It's the cup of the final fulfillment and establishment of the wholeness of the kingdom of God. And he's like, no, 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 we don't drink of that one yet. That one comes when I come back, and when the kingdom of God is fully reigning on earth as it is in heaven. So we have this third cup, The fourth cup gets skipped over, and Jesus is about to drink every last drop of the cup of God's wrath and judgment for us as he approaches the cross. Because apart from it, there's no cup of blessing to be overflowed to and given to his family. He takes that. So go ahead and put this next slide up. So as we look at the Passover next to the Lord's Supper, we see that the Passover is in the old age of the law. It's celebrated in in the old law. We also see that the great festival meal of Passover is celebrating the birth of God's people as he delivers them from Egypt. And the participants in the Passover are associated with deliverance and the old covenant. 
It's associated with deliverance from Egypt and the Old Covenant. And then finally, the Passover looks back to the Exodus and forward to God's eventual salvation. That's what the Passover is looking at. Now, if we look at the Lord's Supper, which is what Jesus is instituting here, we see that it is in the new age of the kingdom. There's a new kingdom that has been inaugurated, as we read, when Jesus comes to earth. It's a new celebratory meal of the birth of God's people. And the participants of the Lord's Supper associate themselves with redemption and the new covenant. So it's not about the old covenant and the exodus from Egypt. Now it's about redemption and what the, the redemption that Jesus is going to bring in this new covenant. And finally, the Lord's Supper looks back at the cross, which brings salvation, and forward to the final realization of the kingdom of God here on earth as in heaven. They look at completely different things. We are in a new age, a new covenant, and that means we need to make sure we are looking at the proper things. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, when we take of communion on a Sunday, we're not looking just at the remembering people being delivered from Egypt. Yes, that is important, and we preached on that. But we are looking back at the cross, and we are looking forward to the full realization and institution of the kingdom of God, the hope that we have in him, the hope for salvation that we have in him. So in summary, like our God is in control. And such confidence in his control should inspire us when hardships and difficult things come along. There's so much that could be taken as we get into this passion. But what I really believe God wants us to grab a hold of in a world that just seems to be spiraling so often, right? There's just so much going on. There's so much that seems like, God, how, how could that be happening? Or, or we just can't like, see how things are working together for good in our paradigm. And God wants you to know he's in control. He's got you. He can handle even this which you are going through. He's done way greater, crazier things. It may not feel like it. It might hurt. It might really be uncomfortable. But he loves you and he's got this. And I pray that noticing God's control as he approaches the cross in Jesus, that that will inspire a greater trust in you to him. He's got this. Second thing in summary is that sin and betrayal don't surprise Jesus. And that means your sin and betrayal doesn't surprise Jesus. He doesn't say, oh my gosh, I can't believe you did that. Now we can't be friends anymore. <laughs> like, that's not how it works. You don't get fired because you mess up. We repent, we confess, and grace abounds. We repent, we confess, and love and grace abounds. There is no such thing as a perfect Christian. There is only a perfect Christ. We get to pursue being more and more like him. And as time goes on, like it takes a shorter amount of time for us to be like, oh, that was wrong. And we confess and we repent and we come back to Jesus, turning from what draws us away from him towards him. And it's this cycle of doing that over and over until the, the times in between are shorter and shorter. And we begin to take on more and more of his character. And we begin to be more and more of a better example of him everywhere we go. But there's no such thing as a perfect Christian. Only a perfect Christ. And it's his grace and his love that covers us in those moments. <clears throat> and finally, I pray that you would understand the significance of Jesus as our true Passover lamb. If you're unfamiliar with the story of the Passover, it was the 10th plague, right, in Egypt as they were being delivered. 
And there's the blood of a lamb that was put over the doorpost of the people. And then this angel of death, if you will, would, would pass over those homes, sparing the firstborn. And that's why the Passover, and it would save God's people. Through that blood sacrifice, they were passed over. And because of the blood sacrifice of Jesus, we are passed over and we have eternal life with our Creator. And that's amazing news. We don't live under the old covenant anymore. We don't have to just hold on to the hope of what God's people had coming out of Egypt in the Exodus. Like we have what Jesus did for us. We have a cross that says you are worthy. You are saved by his love. And justice was absorbed by the Son of God. We get to walk forward knowing that, having hope. Having hope. Having family. It's great news, and I pray that this doesn't pass us by here today. So worship team, you can come back up. I beat you up here. We have an amazing God that loves us so much that he he carried out this amazing plan so that we could be in right relationship with him. Like, so that he could be in right relationship with us, he loved us that much that he gave his son. And I pray that that never gets to be old news. I pray that the reality that for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, for us to be in relationship with him, never gets old. I pray that we wake up, and as soon as we take that first full lungs of air in the morning, and we praise God for that, we also praise him for what Jesus did for us. That can be something that inspires us and invigorates us as we go navigate whatever may be going on in our circumstances and our situations. God's offered his son as a sacrifice for us. The price that he paid for each of you should let you know how much you are worth to him. I know that's not the first time I've said that, but I feel like as I'm closing up today, like God's just looking down on this room. You say, and there's just some people that don't count themselves worthy. They just don't see themselves as worthy. And I believe if God were here right now, standing here, he would say to you, what more can I do than give my one and only son to tell you you're worthy? What more, what more can I do? I gave the ultimate sacrifice so that you would know you are worth it. I love you. And I went to great, great extent to put out this rescue plan to bring you back into my presence, into my relationship. So before we go into communion, as we close, if that's you here this morning, and that's just been something you've struggled with, you're like, God, I just, I don't see how you could love me. I don't love myself. Other people that have been in relationship with me haven't shown me they've loved me. They've just mistreated me, abused me, pushed me down, stomped my head into the dirt. Whatever it may feel like how you're being treated by the relationships in this world, you need to know God loves you. I want to pray that he would heal those parts of your life. And then Casey's going to come up and we are going to partake in the Lord's Supper. So God, I thank you for each person in this room. God, I thank you. Thank you for the gift of your son on the cross. I thank you what that means for each of us individually. And Father, I pray right now for anybody that is either resistant or just not believing that they're worthy of receiving this love and this grace, that you would cast out that lie right now in Jesus' name, and that you would fill them with truth and with hope and with the realization that you counted them worth the cost that was paid. 
You count each one of us worth the price that was paid on that cross. You did it, and Jesus did it with joy. So God, will we not walk that out in a manner of pride, but would we walk that out with humility and overflowing that good news to all that we would be in relationship with? So Father, would your love and grace abound in this room this morning? Would it sink down deep into our souls, and would we be able to operate function and approach you out of a place of knowing who you see us to be, who you have created us to be. So we thank you for that. We praise you in Jesus' name. Case, would you lead us in communion?